Well, let's grab a seat, and uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. This is um, part eight of our series, Did God Really Say? And really just um, been grateful for your input and your feedback. I've loved uh, just hearing what the Lord's doing in your hearts, thinking about hermeneutics, how we interpret the Bible. And um, this is really the last session where we're going to be diving into looking at a particular issue from Scripture. Next week, we're going to do a Q&A. So if you have any questions about what we've talked about the last couple of months, if you have any questions about hermeneutics or particular passages we've looked at, then just email those to me, um, text them to me, send them to me somehow, uh, and then we will we'll start that, we'll, we'll do that next week. So, uh, and, and if nobody has any questions, then I'll just take another week and do something fun. So uh, looking forward to that. And then um, I think the plan is after this, the next equipping hour is going to be um, Omri. He's going to be teaching on some of the, uh, just helping us think through how to, how to process what's happening um, in, in the church at large with regard to social justice and some of the movements toward um, in, in just what does equality look like and how should the church be thinking uh, biblically uh, about social justice. So that'll be um, starting in two weeks, uh, Lord willing. So let's just begin with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Father, we're so thankful for this season as we've celebrated uh, the birth of your son and as, as we come back now on this Lord's Day to, to worship you once again as, as your church, I do pray that you would equip us, um, equip us with uh, sound thinking so that we could uh, read your word and benefit, that we would profit, that we would um, gain what we need. Lord, there's every advantage, every spiritual blessing all that we need sufficiently in your word. And so I do pray, Lord, that we would grow in our ability to read it, to submit to it, to understand it, to apply it. And as a result, you would get more glory and honor from our lives um, than we could have otherwise. Uh, this is indeed uh, the only source of, of our spiritual sustenance. And so we pray that you would grow us uh, in respect to our salvation. We grow in our fear of you, in, in our, our skill of living wisely, and that all starts with how we read your word. And so give us wisdom this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1860, James Matthew Berry was born in Scotland to a large conservative Christianity. He would end up being the ninth of ten children. When he was six years old, his next oldest brother, David, died in an ice skating accident. David was his mother's favorite son, and she, of course, was devastated, as any mother would be. In order to cheer her up, James would, uh, would dress up in his clothes. He would um, whistle like his brother, and then he would enter into the room where his mother was, and, and, and as he even says in, in his autobiography, at uh, one point she, you know, months if not years after he died, asked when he walked into the room, David, is that you? Uh, to which James replied, no, it's not him, it's just me. And apparently the, his mom drew some kind of strange comfort from the thought that even though David had died, he would remain a child forever. 
perpetually the age that he was when he died in the ice skating accident. And many of you may not recognize the name J.M. Barry, but you probably would recognize his most famous work, which was a play that became a novel in 1904. The play Peter and Wendy became the novel 1911. Peter Pan, <clears throat> or the boy who wouldn't grow up. Peter Pan, of course, is the story of a boy who remains a boy in perpetuity and never grows up. He never arrives at maturity, and he puts off all adult things, including, number one, responsibility. My wife read the book, and uh, it's interesting, uh, she read it to our boys, and she, she commented to me one day the, the number of profound differences between the book and the movie. If you've ever you know, seen that movie or, or watched it with your kids, you'll, you'll remember you know, that um, some of the, uh, well, you wouldn't remember this. In the book, what's different from the book and the movie is that Peter Pan is, is so grossly immature. In fact, his nemesis, Captain Hook, can't stand Peter Pan's bad manners. And it's almost like the um, villain is more mature and has better manners than the apparent hero. And if you remember in the movie, uh, I believe the, they, they put a bomb at Hangman's tree and they blow up the, you know, the tree and... And, well, apparently, in order to, in the, in the book, Captain Hook tries to kill Peter Pan by poisoning him. Um, Tinkerbell catches on to the, the plan, and she actually drinks the poison instead of Peter Pan because she's con she, she knows that Peter Pan won't listen to her. And so in order to save his life, she drinks the poison on his behalf and just, you know, literally is supposed to take one for the team. Peter Pan is so juvenile, and so completely self-absorbed that by the end of the book, Tinkerbell has long since been forgotten, and he can't even remember who she was. This is self-absorption self at its fiercest. And then secondly, the lost boys in the book actually return with Wendy and the others to London, and they, they are adopted, and they actually grow up. They actually take on responsibility. They actually become adults. And they find out that there is more to life than perpetual immaturity. But in the book, Peter is quoted as saying this. This is the famous quote. Forget them, Wendy. Forget them all. Come with me where you'll never, never have to worry about, about grown-up things again. Never is an awfully long time. Perpetual immaturity. It's kind of caught the fascination of our culture. We love the idea of adult-type freedoms, but child-level responsibility. If we could just combine those two in perpetuity, that is the definition of adolescence, it seems like. And if we can just continue that throughout adulthood, it seems as though we would have arrived at the greatest level of virtue. Unfortunately, this is becoming all too common in Christianity. In Christianity, immaturity is becoming a virtue, it's becoming so common as to become, we're insensitive to immaturity, spiritual immaturity. Religious sociologists like Andrew Root and Thomas Bergler have written and documented the, the tendency for American Christianity to just go in the direction of immaturity and to love immaturity and to continue feeding immaturity. In, in many instances, it is just pragmatic. In many instances, 
the approach and the pursuit of immaturity is an attempt to appeal to the world. Andrew Root wrote a book about three years ago, um, and he, ta- he documented the increasing rise of the nuns in our demographic. And he's not talking about a Roman Catholic order. He's talking about the N-O-E, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. They don't check any box when it comes to a religious conviction. Um, they have no religious affiliation, and they are just the self-absorbed, younger, uh, hipster millennial. And there's a lack of commitment, lack of responsibility, and absolutely no religious affiliation. And in this book, he talks about how the concern of the church is, hey, we're losing the younger generation. And so in this younger generation that is the next generation of the church, there should be more increasing Christian commitment and conviction, but instead there's less and less and less religious conviction, and no one's citing for religion. And so how do we appeal to this younger, more immature generation? And so the church then, in an insecure step, starts to try to court and appeal to this young, immature demographic that needs to be the next generation of the church, that is going to be the next generation of the church, if there is going to be one. And so it's almost as though you can just see the engineer, of the, the social, so, sociological engineer, biting the fingernail in, in nervousness. What's going to happen? Are we going to appeal? Are we going to grab this younger generation? And so in the attempt to appeal, they turn the church a little bit more juvenile. Thomas Bergler documents the same thing in the juvenilization of American Christianity. And he, he doesn't quite have the right conclusion in the diagnosis, but he makes some great observations about the attempt to grow the church and secure the next generation by increasingly juvenile attempts to promote the faith. And he even documents in there a famous debate between A.W. Tozer and Aaron Headley, the director of YFC, uh, uh, Youth, for, uh, uh, Youth for Christ, and, and the, the discussion is, how are we going to get the next generation? And the, uh, the answer is through Christian movies. And so appeals to uh, the more immature uh, generation, tries to grab more Christians out of the young hipster millennials by entertainment. And the church is caught up in this, and it's just um, interesting how many aspects that you can uh, trace this through. And, and beyond the sociological elements, I mean, our culture is obviously rife with this. Um, we, 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 we just have continued to fuel more and more and more juvenilization. And when, when I was first out of seminary, I was a, a high school pastor. And I remember studying this phenomenon, and I remember teaching on what, is, what, is it, what does it mean to be a teenager to my students and um, I remember reading a book by Thomas Hine on the rise and fall of the American teenager, and it was an interesting document, uh, just just um, um, evidence where he just documented the 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 change in what an, a teenager is and w- and was over the history of our country. And he documented in the colonial era, a teenager is just somebody who is robustly contributing to the family economic, and they are robustly contributing to their dad's work, and they are robustly contributing to a society. They're productive, they're, they're a, a, a wage earner, if not a salary earner, and their income is contributing to the welfare of the home. 
And then you fast forward 250 years, and suddenly he's the flat-chested individual who is in, perpetual, in, per, in perpetuity preparing to become useful to society. And he documented how that became and how that arrived and how we got there. And he documented it through several, several different aspects, including the, ju- the juvenile justice system. Justice used to be something that you would actually weigh in with a judgment and a verdict of a right versus wrong. And now it's become corrections. It went from justice to nurturing. It went from delineating uh, right and wrong to cultivating and nurturing and correcting people back and rehabbing them back to a um, safe contributing part of society. And what happened was, by the introduction of juvenile justice, you have the introduction into a society where children are able to commit adult-level crimes but, res- but have mitigated consequence. And so there's no responsibility. If you're a, a juvenile, you can commit adult-level crimes, but you're not responsible in the same way that an adult is. And that just continues to perpetuate the problem. And then he documented that through the education system. Interestingly enough, you know, high school education wasn't even mandatory until around the World War II era. First high schools were in the, um, in the East and in the Midwest, notably in Boston and uh, in Chicago. And as, as schools started, they were um, just a, 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 a training for uh, like a trade and so if you went to a school at the, at, the, at the level of a teenager in the 1800s, you would learn a skill that made you uh, in, in immediately effective in the marketplace. And then lo and behold, as the leaders of these schools started talking to leaders of colleges, they started creating curriculum to prepare students for college. And so the high school became then a preparatory school for college. And then now college is preparatory for a master's degree and preparatory for something else. And so it ends up just continuing to be delayed responsibility. So you fast forward to today when you have Pajama Boy and all the other icons of this generation who... uh, you know, well, why would I have to be responsible? I'm still only 29 living in my mom's basement. And so the juvenilization is very obvious. You're very aware of it. What does that have to do with <clears throat> hermeneutics? This passage says everything. It has everything to do with hermeneutics. How we read our Bible is one of the most important ways that we contribute to spiritual immaturity. This passage that we're going to dive into this morning um, in our last and final session on how do we read, uh, did God really say, uh, the most important thing we can think about when it comes to hermeneutics is the state of our heart, and this text is going to make it clear that how we read the scriptures contributes directly to our relative immaturity or maturity. If we do not read the scriptures correctly, but if we read particularly for one particular vein, if we are reading through one particular lens, looking for one particular set of answers, or reading it theologically, we can actually perpetuate more and more spiritual immaturity. Let's dive into Hebrews chapter 5. And did God really say, part 8, the title for this installment is going to be Stuck in Neverland. Stuck in Neverland, hermeneutics in perpetual immaturity. This text warns us and explains to us how we are actually responsible for perpetual immaturity. When 
When Christians remain perpetually immature, it's our own fault. And it actually relates directly to how we read the Bible, how we devour the Bible, how we consume the Bible, how we understand the Bible, how we interpret the Bible. This contributes directly. So as you're turning to Hebrews, we'll start in chapter 5, verse 11, and I'm going to read through chapter 6, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, verse 2. Follow along with me. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands in the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. If we are stuck in spiritual neverland, we only have our our own selves to blame. In verse 12, the apostle tells this audience that even though by now the readers of this epistle should be teachers, they are actually in need of someone to teach them the elementary principles of the things of God. So they should be professors, they should be instructors, there should be a level of expertise about their spiritual maturity, but instead they're still in need of the ABCs. And why is this? Something's gone wrong. Well, it's interesting. If we go back to verse 11, you probably, well, you, you, I didn't finish this whole warning passage, but this whole warning passage goes from 511 all the way through to chapter 6, verse 12. And this author is very fond of using bookends to, to communicate where his sections start and stop, and this is one of those. The, the phrase translated dole of hearing is a little word in the Greek. It only occurs twice in the entire Greek New Testament, once here and then once in chapter 6, verse 12. If you skip down to chapter 6, verse 12, you'll notice in English it says, I'm reading out of the NASB, so that you will not be sluggish. Same word, sluggish. And so in verse 11 of chapter 5, it's translated dole of hearing. In chapter 6, verse 12, it's translated sluggish. It means lazy, lethargic, dull, insensitive. And the concern that he has for his audience is, I'm concerned that you're insensitive and you're dull and you're sluggish. You're not hearing the scripture as you ought. Why is that? There's a couple couple reasons why we're responsible for our own perpetual immaturity. And in verses 11 to 13, he's going to explain it's because of dull ears. Dull ears. When we have insensitive ears and we don't hear Scripture in the way that God gave it to us, when we don't hear Scripture in the way that he spoke, 
We won't listen in the form and fashion that he, he left us. When we won't listen to that form of speech, we immediately be, begin to grow less and less mature. We perpetuate spiritual neverland in our own heart when we won't listen to God in the very form and fashion that he spoke to us in. Verse 11, it starts out concerning him, and the question here is of who's the him, and of course the him is Christ. If you go back and read verses 1 through 10, he's talking about Jesus as our high priest. <coughs> Specifically, in verse 10, he's talking about Jesus being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the apostle is, is beginning uh, an exposition of Psalm 110, and he talks about the implications of Christ being in the order of Melchizedek, because that's exactly what David says that he is in Psalm 110. He says he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so he's, he's not doing something fanciful with Genesis 14. He's actually just simply interpreting Psalm 110. Jesus is the order of Melchizedek because Psalm 110 says so, and our author is just giving an exposition of that psalm. And so now in verse 11, before he really gets to the heart of what's important about Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, which he really gets to in chapter 7, he has to pause and explain, you know, you're not even ready for me to get there. He wants to dive into the Melchizedekian discussion. And he has to pause and say, but you're not ready for that. And this is not just, you know, he's not just wetting their appetites, it's some sort of cheap rhetorical tactic. You know, you're not ready for that. Do you really want me to go down that road? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, no, we'll go down that road now, now that I got you worked up into a frenzy. No, he's genuinely concerned because he knows that if he dove into the discussion about the Melchizedekian priesthood, it would be very tough for them to swallow. Why? Verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain. It's hard to explain, literally hard to interpret. The root of this word is where we get our word hermeneutics, this whole series we've been doing. It's right here in this word. It's hard to interpret. It's difficult to interpret. Not because Melchizedek is such a complicated subject, but because of the dull ears of the audience. And that's what he's concerned about. He loves his audience and he's concerned. He wants to dive in. There's so many riches and truths about Christ that he wants to talk about. But he says, we can't actually get there. It's going to be difficult to get there right now because you have become dull of hearing. There's something about their hearing, their ability to listen to Scripture and interpret the meaning of God's Word that prevents them from hearing this discussion about Melchizedek. It's not too lofty. It's not too erudite. It's not too abstract to be discussed. The difficulty does not lie in the pen of the author. He's writing under inspiration. He understands his subject. He is fluent in the Old Testament. He understands the fulfillment of Christ the Messiah as the Melchizedekian priest. That is not the difficulty. The difficulty is in the audience. It's in the listener. It's in the hearing. And so, due to the challenge of their laziness, the word sluggish or Hard of hearing means, means it's, it's sluggish, it's insensitive, it's an ear that is, you know, it, 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 needs, it needs some spiritual hearing aids. This is not a physical receptivity of hearing, this is a spiritual receptivity of hearing. 
And if they're worthy, a spiritual equivalent of hearing aids, that's what this audience needs because they are sluggish in their hearing. And, and the question is, well, how does our author know that? And that's, of course, what he says in verse 12. Here's how I know that, verse 12, because by this time you ought to be teachers, but instead you have need again of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. We're going back to the fundamentals, the ABCs, the, the 101 of Christianity. And the oracles of God, you, you, you ought to be ready for what I need to say and want to say about Christ being the Melchizedekian priest, but you're not ready for it. You say, oh, but we're immature. Well, yes, that's true, but it's actually your own fault. If somebody were immature because they'd only been in the faith for a short time, that's not their fault. By God's grace, they're saved. And they're a new believer. And they're young in the faith. We would call that young in the faith. We wouldn't call that derisively immature. I mean, you might say whether well, you're immature just by the sheer amount of time, but that's not an insult. That's just reality. This is a critique of willful, responsible immaturity, and it comes back to hermeneutics. They are not ready to hear a particular discussion because they have their ears tuned to only hear one subject, a subject of choice. And so this author is ready to dive in, and they're not ready for it. You know, when Paul talks about elementary principles, uh, he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses milk terminology for the Corinthians and says, you know, I had to give you milk. And there it's, it's an insult. It's, it's pejorative. When Peter talks about the scriptures being milk, he's not using it in a pejorative sense. He's saying all Christians should long for the pure milk of the word, like babies long for milk. There it's a positive thing. It, it, it's not wrong. In fact, he's using the desire of a child, for a baby, an infant, for milk, because that's part and parcel of living. It's essential for life, and it's essential for every Christian's life, regardless of your maturity. But in this context, Hebrews 5, or in the 1 Corinthians 3 context, Milk is used in a pejorative sense because it should not be that way. This is a mature person who still needs milk and who only has an appetite for milk. If somebody in their 20s came over to my house and I offered them a steak and they said, no, 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 I'd rather have a sippy cup with some formula, I'd say something's wrong here. Something is seriously wrong. This is an issue of maturity. Like, like first of all, what's wrong with you that you wouldn't want the ribeye and you would prefer the formula? But secondly, what about maturity? I mean, what, what are, how are your parents raising you? And so he says, at the end of verse 12, you have come to need milk um, and not solid food. And that's not a praise. That's an explanation of the problem. This is the diagnosis. This is why he can't dive into immediately. He can't dive into the discussion of Melchizedek. He has so much more about Christ that he wants to say. In verse 13, he explains, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. And that's important. There's nothing wrong with the fundamentals. There's nothing wrong with milk. It's essential. There's everything wrong with only drinking milk into, perpetually into the years where we ought to be mature. That's the problem. 
And notice what you don't have a taste for. If you compare it from solid meat or um, food to milk, well, the solid food in verse 13 is the word of righteousness. So helpful. The apostle tells us, look, this articulation from God is the word of righteousness. And it's important and helpful for young Christians and uh, when we're spiritually immature to just be able to say, let's just open up to a few critical texts and let's just start there and let's lay some foundation and let's look at what the scriptures say. And, and, and there's a lot that it says and we can't take it all in at once. And so we're highlighting some of the more critical themes, the more basic themes, more the foundational truths that other truths are built on. He acknowledges that in verse 12, elementary principles. He goes back to that in chapter 6, verse 1, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ. Let's press on. And so clearly, he acknowledges there are elementary principles. Clearly, there are elements that you have to devour and digest that he would call milk. But that's all this audience wants, is they just want milk. They have a taste for milk. And there they are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, still with sippy cup in hand, unable to eat the steak of the word of righteousness. In the fashion that God spoke it, this is a living book. It cuts to the quick. It exposes the heart. It creates life. It restores life. And no fundamental, simplistic creed or doctrinal statement will ever replace it or could ever come close to producing body life. Only the word of righteousness. And when a Christian people no longer have a taste for the word of righteousness, spiritual neverland is the result. So what's the solution? Why are these adults still drinking out of sippy cups and turning down the ribeye that this preacher is offering in his discussion from Psalm 110 about the Melchizedekian priesthood of the Messiah? Well, Verse 14 starts to explain the second reason why we're responsible for our perpetual immaturity. The first one is dull ears. The second one in verse 14 is untrained senses. Untrained senses. Our sensitivities, they aren't trained the way they need to be. It's only by the way of training our senses can we discern good and evil, and only by training our senses can we have an appetite for the solid food of the word of righteousness. When we train our senses and we see our sin precisely from the scripture, it produces a greater appetite because we see our need for what the scriptures only will give us and afford us. And so verse 14 explains, here's the pathology really, if, if he was in a clinic, if they were coming to him for the pathology and they say, what's the problem? He's like, okay, the problem is 
spiritual neverland. That's where you're living. You're spiritually immature. Okay, well, what's the diagnosis for how do I, how do I what's the restoration? What's the, what's the prescription? What's the remedy? And he says, well, here's, here's the answer. Here's how you got here, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. Solid food is for the mature. The spiritually mature are enjoying the ribeye, and to his audience he says, but that's not you. So how did you not grow into maturity? Verse 14b, he explains who the mature are. Mature are those who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. First of all, look at this word, practice. That's a word that means custom. It becomes a habit. It's so habitual that you become in a, a permanent condition or practice. It's a state or a habit of your life. It's just the ebb and flow of how you live. When you When you walk the same way over a course of time, it becomes the habit and practice of your life. It's like in wildlife when a uh, you know, animal takes the same path to the same drink of water. He wears a natural path through the, the, the rugged landscape. And you can see, man, an animal walks this thing every day to come get his water. And it's just the, the, the habit, the, the practice. It's what's customary for you. And so here, he says that the mature are those who have a path worn. And it's, there's a, a practice. It's a customary habit of their life. And they have trained their senses. And the word trained is where we get our word gymnasium, gymnazo. You have trained. You have worked out to work out. It's interesting, you know, when you think about Christianity and the theological tendencies, especially in Reformed Christianity. I mean, we're, we're, kind, of in a, we're kind of in a cyclical pattern, but at least five to ten years ago, we were definitely in the, at the bottom of... Um, emphasizing, overemphasizing um, justification at the expense of sanctification. And in Reformed Christianity, sometimes it's easy to just love the truth of justification, and um, you can't overlove it, and you can't talk too much about justification, but you can certainly not talk enough about obligation and responsibility. And we were certainly in one of those trends uh, five to ten years ago, if not still today, because it's perpetually and attractive to our heart to emphasize, hey, we have righteousness given to us, and it's a lot of work to let the commands of Scripture be the commands of Scripture and to emphasize the responsibility that we have before the Lord. And so, when you come to a passage like this that talks about maturity comes from having your senses trained it means working out your sensitivities, it becomes very difficult and exhausting at times to keep training your sensitivities. you got to keep flexing that muscle. So when you go to the gym and you work out, you know, that you're, you're, you know what you're doing, right? You're, you're flexing muscle and you're pulling weight and it's actually damaging the, the muscle cells and as those muscle cells are being damaged in a somewhat healthy fashion, they're, they're, they're breaking and tearing and they're actually then swelling and that's what makes muscle mass larger and it increases the capacity to flex and it increases strength. So you actually grow in strength as you flex that muscle. And so here he's talking about working out your 
senses, your sensitivities. What's a sensitivity? A sensitivity is an alarm system. When your alarms go off about some particular issue, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations in counseling as a pastor where you, you, you're, you're, you're walking somebody through a situation in their life and they're like, look what happened in my life. My life's a mess. Look at this issue. And you say, well, how did you get here? And if the person's in the thick of it, of course, they don't know how they got here because I don't, I'm like that. I'm, I'm the same way. If I'm in the midst of, of a mess in my, in my own life, I can't see my way out of it. I don't have clarity. If I could see, if I had clarity, I wouldn't even have been in that mess. So why don't I have clarity? And I start to walk somebody through a set, a set of illustrations about sensitivities. And I said, well, look, let's say right here is the center of the problem. And you know that you're in a problem because you, you crossed some lines. And you feel like, man, I just, there was this fence and this barrier. And somehow I jumped over that fence. And I said, no, that's not the problem. The problem is not that you jumped this fence. And we talk about that particular scenario. Yeah, that's a problem, but that's not where it started, is it? What about this fence? And what about that fence? And what about this fence? And what about that fence? And what about this fence? And what about this set of sensitivities? And then you get about eight sets of sensitivities in, and they're looking at you like, I never even thought about that. That's right. Because you haven't been training your senses to discern right from wrong. There was about... Ten sets of fences that you trampled over. And now you're in this mess. And the Lord wanted to spare you from that. But you didn't train your senses back here. You know what happens when you keep training your senses? Two things happen. Number one, you get really tired. Number two, you get mature. You get tired when you train senses. Let's just be honest. If we compared this, if I took this gymnazo word and I kind of created my own little illustration of what it means to train senses, let's just say we're going to the gym. Christianity is going to the gym. It gets tiring to go to the gym and say, oh, I got to do reps again today? I mean, I just did this yesterday. My muscles are tired. And then it becomes almost insurmountable when you walk over to the weight room and you see other Christians sitting in the spa at the same gym. And they're sitting there in the hot tub. And they're soaking it up in the hot tub saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm at the gym. This is what you do. I mean, what are you doing going to pump weights? I mean, don't you know Christ did it for you? Come on over to the hot tub. What are you doing all the effort for? Forget about it. Jump into the hot tub. And you're thinking, again, I got to go flex. I got to go pull weight. Man, maybe, am I trying to get saved by works here? I got all these... Christian's telling me to jump in the hot tub and stop flexing. And you got the apostle telling you, you know why there's immaturity here? Because people stop training their senses to discern good and evil. And I'll tell you what, if you, are, if you appeal to God for grace to tirelessly keep training your senses to discern right from wrong, he'll answer it and it, it gets hard flesh, we'll tell you what, it gets tiring, does it not, to keep indicting yourself? Oh, there's something that, oh, let's just whitewash it. Oh, let's just excuse it. Let's just, just, it's not that bad. And we have all sorts of sophisticated ways to get around training our senses. 
But when we train our senses, that means we keep flexing the discernment of right and wrong. And that means we have to constantly call an ace an ace and a spade a spade. We have to call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. And we have to indict ourselves every time there's a wayward impulse, a wayward desire, a wayward thought, something in our hearts inclining toward selfish ambition, inclining toward laziness, inclining toward vain glory, away from the glory of God, away from truth, away from submission. And if we keep indicting ourselves, we will get tired, but we will also get mature. This audience that our apostle is speaking to is immature because they stopped training their senses. By the way, isn't it fascinating that the topic that he's trying to get to doesn't happen until chapter 7? And just to give you a little bit of biblical theology from the book of Hebrews, we don't have time to do this, but I'll just make a quick comment, and you can go read this later. Do yourself a favor and go read Hebrews 7, thinking of this very reality. He wants to get them to a point where they can think about Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood, which is a perpetual intercession and the only source of a clean conscience. If this audience simply whitewashes every act of sin in their inner man, and they stop discerning right from wrong, they don't need a Melchizedekian priesthood. They just need good old justification. But when you are in the habit of constantly seeing what's aberrant about your heart and your mind, you live in a state where you need and want the Melchizedekian priesthood, a constant intercession for who you are by nature as God is saving you from who you were. And so, lo and behold, the constant training in righteousness, the constant flexing of the discernment muscle to indict yourself, prepares you to hear about these more advanced truths about Christ's work. And so it's just fascinating and just fantastic how our writer prepares us to hear about the Melchizedekian priesthood. But he points to the fact that solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. A.W. Pink, he said it this way. He said, the bread of life contained in the word and tasted in sermons must be devoured, consumed, and result in energy burned for the Lord. Manna not eaten breeds worms. Milk undigested ferments. And that's exactly right. We've got to take the truth. We've got to submit to it. We've got to flex all every spiritual muscle with all of the nutrients and resources that the scriptures provide. And that is the only safe way to handle the word, to be around the word, to read the word, to understand the word, to interpret the word. In chapter 6, verse 1, it's one of the most unfortunate chapter breaks in the Bible because we're still in the same discussion and this is actually still the same warning. It properly goes from 5.11 to 6.12 and then there's a transition paragraph from 6.13 to 6.20 and then he finally gets back to the Melchizedekian priesthood in chapter 7, verse 1. And so when you read this paragraph from 5.11 to 5.14, continue reading to verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. In fact, the first word, therefore, is very, very important. There's, there's, there's several therefores in the, in the original language. There's about five 
to six major, four major uh, um, inferentials that are translated therefore, and this is one of the major ones, um, but it's not the one that develops a new discussion. This is an inference that actually continues the discussion about the, the previous paragraph. So, so here's the two ways the, these, these might work. Let me give you an illustration. The two ways we might use therefore in the English language, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear the difference here. Let's say um, it's a Saturday morning, and I, I wake up the boys, and I say, boys, let's get up. We're going to get ready, and get, you know, we're going to go about our day. We're going to get ready. So we got some people coming over tomorrow after church. we got to get the house ready. So here's what we're going to do. Guests are coming tomorrow, so I need you to clean your rooms and the bathroom. Therefore, make sure that your clothes are folded, your toys are put away, um, and um, Owen, clean the tub. Derek, take, clean the trash, take out the trash, clean the mirror. Um, Miles, you, you've got the floor. Micah, you've got the toilet. Joy of all joys. Now, I use therefore... But I didn't change the subjects. I gave specific exhortations about how that was going to happen. But let's say after that, therefore, I then said, therefore, if you finish all of this before dinner, we can still go out and do whatever activity we were hoping to do that day. That's a different therefore. One therefore says, here's, here's the reality. We've got guests coming. So there's implications for what that means and then the next one moves on to the next logical discussion, and therefore, if this all is taken care of, we can actually do this activity. It's not related to the house. It's not related to company. It's not related to hospitality. It's simply an inference of the next discussion. And those are two different therefores. This is the therefore that actually it doesn't move on to a new discussion. This is not a new discussion. He's actually giving the implication of the same discussion. So therefore... Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. And it's interesting that he picks Christ as the topic of the foundational truths, that when that becomes everything, we perpetuate immaturity. I, I think today we are in a, a day and age where hermeneutically we perpetuate immaturity by making Christology or even a Christocentric hermeneutic basically the singular focus of how we read Scripture. If we make that the singular focus of how we read Scripture, we will perpetuate immaturity. We actually are guilty now of increasing our own spiritual immaturity. We make sure that we stay in Neverland instead of moving on to everything that God wants to teach us, the whole counsel of God, all that is beneficial. Do not forget it was about three months ago, Smed preached Acts 20, and you remember the refrain, I did not shrink back, Acts 20, 20. Verse 27, I did not shrink back. What did Paul not shrink back from? He said two different things. I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, and I didn't shrink back from declaring all that is beneficial. The whole counsel of God is beneficial for the Christian. We have all benefit, all spiritual nutrition, nourishment, all that we need in the whole counsel of God. And then we come along and hermeneutically we say, no, 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 we're going to just focus on one point. We're going to read this book theologically and we're going to get, we've, 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 we've picked up a lens that we like and we want to read through this lens. This is my lens through how I read scripture. 
Really, that's your lens? Do not perpetuate immaturity by singularly focusing on one thing, one topic, or one way to read. Just We've got to come to the Scriptures, and we've got to train our senses, and we've got to be indicted and exposed so that our hearts are ready for all that God has for us in the whole counsel of Scripture. That's the only safe way to read. Because notice what happens in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings and laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He gives six more examples besides Christ, besides Christology, that are foundational. And he's saying, let's not, let's not remain here at the foundation. Let's move on. And look where he's going. He's moving on to a more advanced teaching about Christ, even. The Melchizedekian priesthood. So no, it's not true that he's not saying you outgrow Christ or you outgrow the gospel. The problem is, is if we read Christocentrically or in a gospel-centered framework, we can easily make four or five favorite truths of the gospel the everything. And when the fundamentals become the everything, Christians suffer and we stop maturing. Notice, these examples of the foundational truths, they are not marginal. I mean, you were talking about repentance from dead works, faith in the living God, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. I mean, these are foundational, essential, critical. We can't scrap these. We can never uh, uh, ignore these and neglect these. But we can make them everything, and we will become spiritually immature. Uh, I, I read a blog on the gospel-centered way to read the scriptures and interact with the scriptures, and I was intrigued by, no doubt, a well, well-intentioned blog that loves the gospel, written by somebody who loves the gospel. But it had an interesting way to articulate how we should read the imperatives of the Scripture, and it really kind of relegated uh, the benefit of reading in a gospel-centered way is that when you read imperatives and you realize how hard it is and how far you've come, it accentuates grace uh, in the sense of the grace of forgiveness. And there wasn't, I didn't find a necessarily a more helpful and more balanced articulation of the necessary grace to actually walk in righteousness and to train your senses and to have an appetite for the word of righteousness, which would produce actual righteousness in your life and in your conduct by way of custom, by way of habit. And my fear is, is that a lot of times we read the scriptures with a hermeneutic that can perpetuate the hot tub Christianity. It can perpetuate the ease and the comfort. It's time to get back to the gym. It's time to train our senses to discern right from wrong. And that's the only way forward. And we need to stop blaming others and start blaming ourselves if we're not growing, if we're not actually submitting to the commands of Scripture and, and believing the promises of God and responding with faith 
Sometimes God tells us what to do and we need to do it. Sometimes he tells us what to believe, we need to believe it. Sometimes he gives a command, we need to obey it. Sometimes he gives a promise, we need to, we need to take it as fact. And sometimes he warns us and we need to give heed. We need to respond with faith to every utterance. Every utterance. And we need to let him speak. We can't pick a theological lens. We can't have favorite topics that we just are all that we read for. When we pick up our Bibles in the morning, sometimes it's easy to read the ones that we've already mastered. And then we feel accomplished. And we cement more and more immaturity because we have our six, maybe it's like this audience, they have seven, in chapter six, verses one and two, seven topics. Let's say those are our seven. And we've mastered those seven. And whenever we come across something that's outside of those seven, it's a little bit challenging. And we like just, it's more comfortable to go back to the seven. And so we have this little theological lens and we just kind of make that our hermeneutic. We won't survive. We'll perpetuate immaturity and we'll be sitting there, the equivalent of a, equivalent of a spiritual 25-year-old with a sippy cup in hand. And so it's time to diagnose our hearts and diagnose our maturity. How do you read? How do you read the scriptures? How does it read to you? And make sure that you're training your senses to discern good and evil. And when you do, you'll be ready for these truths that God wants to teach us. It's, it's tiring. It's exhausting. It's going to require grace. But it's so worth it. Did God really say? He certainly did. And this last discussion from Hebrews 5 hopefully is an encouragement to consider how do you read? And how you read is the most important aspect to your spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, which is such a help to us. It's such a preparation for our heart to consider how do we read your word and how do we listen to your word. And to see a passage where an audience was hearing from an inspired author a, a message that they so desperately needed that they weren't prepared for because the way that they listened to your word was immature. Lord, as, as your children, we long to grow in respect to our salvation. We long to grow in maturity, in discernment, in humility. I pray that we would never tire of indicting ourselves. I pray that we would constantly with scrutiny, with discernment, look deep within our own heart through the light of your word and tirelessly flex the discernment muscle and recognize what you have produced and call it good and recognize what we do by nature and call it evil and be able to continue to indict ourselves and to extol your, your, the truth of what you're doing by the power of your spirit in our lives so that we would grow that we would be mature. And so, Lord, as we throw off these hermeneutical lenses that would cripple us and we come to your word ready to hear everything that you have told us, everything you have spoken, uh, as we uh, are concerned, increasingly concerned about uh, only, only treating a, a set and limited number of topics that uh, men sometimes systematize about your word, I pray that we would be ready to come to the, the, the high-definition picture of your, your revelation in Scripture. It, it, it lacks nothing. There is in, infinite clarity 
and perfect, perfect um, revelation and balance in the utterances of the word of righteousness. And so, Lord, um, thank you for this jewel of Scripture. And that's probably one of the first things we want to thank you for in light of this series. Is just it, it has increased our love of your word just to see how clearly you have spoken. Um, so, Lord, we're so thankful for your grace to us in these last few weeks. And um, we know that you will bless your word as we submit to it, as we believe it, and as we now train our senses to discern good and evil. In your name we pray. Amen.